Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm your host for the day, Jonathan Hall, and here in the virtual studio is my co-host, Will Button. Hello everyone. And we're excited to have on the show today, Mr. Max Howell. Hi Max. Hey, great to be here. Glad to have you on the show. We're a little bit starstruck here. Uh, We discovered that you invented homebrew, and I think we're going to talk about that. So that's kind of cool. Um, but before we dive into that topic, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do. Um, yeah, well, let's, let's stop, stop with that. Uh, sure. Um, so I got into programming as a hobby. Uh, my dad taught me when I was like six. And so uh, I've been doing it a while, but I, I never thought I'd do it as a career. Like, I was always into computers, but I don't know, someone convinced me it wasn't like, a real job or something like that. So I did a chemistry degree and I uh, got into software because I hated working in the chemistry industry. Uh, it turns out it's boring. I kind of knew that, but it, it took me to actually work in it before I, I sort of got depressed and installed Linux and discovered open source and started getting into the open source ecosystem. And that eventually got me work in the actual industry and then, uh, like, my most famous contribution, obviously, is Homebrew. That was, like, 2009 or so. And uh, since then, I've done a lot of open source, worked at various startups. I worked at Apple for a year. And uh, 14 months ago, I started a new company called T, which is an attempt to do a successor to Homebrew. I'm curious. You said you were at Apple for a year. Uh, that that mm. sounds pretty short. Like a lot of people would yeah. dr- dream to work there, and they would want their whole career <laughs> yeah. there. Well, why? Why just a year? If you're willing to share. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's a good set of stories. So um, it was, I think, yeah, it was 2015, and I had since about um, 2000. Nine two now two thousand eight. I've been working a lot with iPhone apps. So Homebrew was two thousand nine, and the ascent of Homebrew sort of coincided quite a bit with the ascent of the iPhone App Store, and so I was torn between both of them. But I, you know, whatever. I was an Apple fanboy for sure in every possible way. Like I built a package manager for Mac, and I was working on iPhone apps a lot. And so in about yeah twenty fifteen, I was living in Chicago. And I was working at uh, an iPhone app boot camp, um, which morally I felt somewhat dubious about. But I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Um, It was really good fun teaching these students. Unfortunately, the boot camp didn't do so well and closed. And so I was suddenly left without like a regular job. And I I loved that boot camp as well because I only worked 50% time. So the other 50% of the time, I worked on homebrew and other open source projects. And so I felt like I was living the dream, like getting to like do a job that I pretty much liked that didn't require huge amounts of mental energy. Sorry, teachers in the audience. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then the other 50% of the time I was working on what I was really passionate about, which was what I, you know, I love open source. It's really something that's always resonated well with me, like the idea of being part of these huge projects that you, you can have such an active part in people from all over the world are involved and like because it's free people only use it if they like it there's no marketing engine that's trying to persuade people to use something that even though it's going to turn out to be rubbish <laughs> which you know let's face it a lot of capitalism produces mm-hmm. uh, so yeah i lost that job because it closed so i was stuck so um my wife at the time said why don't you reply to google because they've been sending me recruitment emails since homebrew became popular. And every time I turned it down, because I don't really like working for big companies. So anyway, I, I wrote back and I was like, okay, I'll come for the interview. And they were like, wow, okay. And they rushed me through. I didn't get the phone interview. They just flew me out. And like, before I flew out, I said to the recruiter, look, I don't have computer science. You know that, right? You're not going to ask me all those computer science interview questions. 
and the recruiter was like, "No, no, we understand. You're not you're not that kind of developer. We got we got something in mind for you." So I assumed that you know I'd go there and like I'd work on homebrew or I'd make a package manager for Google or maybe they'd have me doing like IELTS apps because I was pretty good at those as well. So I got there and like the first interview was uh, inverting a binary tree, and <laughs> I was like, "What? Have you, I gave it a good attempt because I have a basic understanding. It's just like I never like I." do have some computer science knowledge now because you do programming, you end up having to do some algorithms here and there. But like most of the time, let's face it, we just Google like for the answers because it's solved, exactly. solved stuff. And so I, I wasn't that. So anyway, it wasn't a good day. <laughs> uh, and uh, a couple of weeks later, they phoned me up and they were like, yeah, you, you, sorry, you didn't get the job. So I went straight to Twitter and I typed, um, 90% of our engineers use the software you wrote in um brackets homebrew but you can't invite uh invert a binary tree on the whiteboard so f off (laughs) (laughs) and uh at the time i had like 600 followers like if that on twitter like nobody gave a crap who i was but then hacker news found that tweet (laughs) and and after a couple of weeks, I had 10,000 followers, but well, uh, it went super, super viral. Like the tweet has uh, an impression count of like 10 million or something at this point. It still exists. People still reply to it as though it happened yesterday. Um, I feel really bad about it, honestly, because I wasn't trying to shame Google. It was just like I was a, a little like, I, I didn't think I got the job, you know, because I found all these interviews. But I still felt that it was kind of stupid because surely there was something I could do there. You know, like, wh- why does it matter if I, ha- I can't do this set of tasks? Because I've proved I can do something that is important and useful. But, yeah, so um, the, the result was I got over 300 uh, recruitment emails from good companies. <laughs> um, and uh, I was spoiled for choice. But Apple were one of those companies. And obviously, I was a huge fanboy. So uh, I went to the interview there and they gave me an easy set of interviews because they probably <laughs> didn't want the didn't want the same treatment uh and they offered me a job and the job was to build the swift package manager so swift was a relatively new language which i was enjoying and like, it seemed like a really great opportunity um but i got there and i discovered they wanted to open source swift in three months so i had three months to build the entire thing <laughs> and uh well as a result, it wasn't as good as it should have been. But the main reason that I was only there a year is because I just found it really difficult to work there. It's the mm. truth. I'm not a corporate person. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a startup guy working mm. like, and I, I got there. Like during the interviews, everyone's like, oh, we love homebrew. You know, you're going to be able to work how you want to work and we're going to give you free reign. And as soon as I got there, we're like, no, you can't do anything you want. <laughs> and uh every, everything you design has to go through uh, a gauntlet of meetings where people just sit there and pick it apart and uh you can't try you can't iterate like my development style is very iterative like i i come up with an idea i program it i try it out and if it sucks i throw it away like i just didn't work there they couldn't they couldn't understand how you, you could do things that way they were like, so you're not going to design everything up front? I'm like, well, no. <laughs> is that how you usually do things at Apple? That was quite a shock. But yeah, yeah. that is how they do things. Okay. That's interesting because a lot of the startup space is just build something you think is going to work, throw it out there, and then wait and see if your assumptions match up with the reality and, and try to fail as fast as possible. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it was foolish of me to think that <laughs> it was a good <laughs> idea, really. <laughs> so, you know, I was nine months in and like, I was depressed. I get depressed if I don't enjoy the work. Like, it's, work's very important to me. And uh, I started, like, honestly, I was barely doing anything there. I, was, I wasn't turning up. <laughs> I was waiting to see how long I could get away with like not working in California, and uh, <laughs> honestly, honestly um, it could have been a long time, I think. Um, but I was depressed, so I went to see like the head of HR for the entire software engineering department, and she was like, "So Max, 
what's going on? <laughs> I was like, well, this just isn't working out for me and I don't know what to do about it. And she's like, well, we don't want to terminate you. And I was like, well, you probably do. <laughs> <laughs> if you knew everything. <laughs> and uh, she was like, no, no, we don't. So uh, we, we tried like something else and then uh, I went back to see her and, uh, and I was like, I'll, I'll just quit. And that was probably stupid because uh, God knows how much severance I might have got, you know. <laughs> but, uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not like you know. I, I did the same thing. I, I, Google reached out to me a few years ago, and I was like, I don't want to work at Google, but what the heck? So I flew out there, and I they didn't they didn't uh, fast track me, but I did fly out there. And then they called me like, sorry, you didn't get the job because I don't I don't know what the thing was. It was an SRE role and something they didn't like. Uh, I didn't do right. Then I took a job at Booking.com, which is, it's not as big as Apple or Google, but it's a big company. You know, they had a mm. thousand engineers at the time. I lasted a year also. <laughs> I got depressed. <laughs> I didn't like I it. I mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, just felt like I didn't have any, it, it, it was apparent to me that at Apple, you have to be there 10 years before anyone listened to you. Mm. You you got there and like, it doesn't matter what you had before. Now you're like, an Apple person, and it's reset down to zero. And uh, I've never been anywhere for four years. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, so I didn't see how I could do it. And yeah, it's like, yeah, you've got no impact when you work at these big places. Yeah. So, so let's talk about tea a little bit. I'm curious to hear what this is. Uh, why, why do we need something better than homebrew? I'm not. A, by the way, I'm not a Mac user. I know what Homebrew is. I've used it a few times. I've used a Mac occasionally, but I'm m m mostly a Linux guy. Um, so um, we'll assume that not everybody in the audience is an avid Homebrew user either. Um, tell us why we need something better. Yeah, so uh, you, know, you can actually use Homebrew on Linux now, but that wasn't me. Okay. Um, wouldn't necessarily say that's what you should do. <laughs> anyway, so like Homebrew 2009, I built it because uh, we used Mac at the company I was at and we were building all these different apps and Mac was like the unified platform. We could run a Linux VM and a Windows VM and like, all the open source was available and the tooling was good. Um, but the package management solutions for Mac were not, not good enough for me. Um, I used to complain about it a lot at the pub, hence the name. Uh, because we talk about it at the pub and I look for a name and my co-worker was like, well, it needs a beer theme, obviously. And like, <laughs> we forget that in 2009, I think uh, there was a real beer culture in Web2 at that time. I remember GitHub would have blog posts like where they boast about how they had a tap installed at the office <laughs> so you could right, dispense yeah. pints. Um, so like now, it you know, it's not the same at all. And for good reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is part of the reason why it's called tea, incidentally. It's like uh, riffing off the brew theme because you brew tea, but also like it's a more mature uh, option that we've we've learned from our mistakes. <laughs> more but sophisticated. Homebrew, yeah, yeah. Homebrew became very popular really quite quickly. Um, within a few years, there's millions of users and anyone who was doing anything with Mac was using it. That's partly because I coded all this virality into it. Like GitHub was new, people didn't know how to use it, and like I sort of discovered some of the things that happen nowadays. And uh, it's because like Ruby on Rails was becoming super popular, and Ruby on Rails was like Mac people, and Mac was becoming a platform for developers at that point. Like I remember two years before that, I had a Mac, and everyone I worked with was like, "Why have you got a Mac? Like you a fanboy?" <laughs> uh, and then, like, 2009, like, half of them had bought Mac. And nowadays, if you go to a startup, like, if you see someone with a Linux computer, it's pretty unusual. And I have a lot of respect for it. Like, I started with Linux. Um, but, yeah, so what what's wrong with Brew? Well, it's pretty good, but it's still pretty basic. Like, in the years since I stopped working on it, which is about 2016, honestly, I was just burned out. Um, I, I've kept notes about all the things that something like a package manager could do, but doesn't. It seems bizarre to me that there's so much potential at that layer. Like for developers, you like define how they work. And for people who do DevOps or SysOps, like, it, again, it's like an essential part of that toolbox. 
And yeah, all it does is like install stuff and update stuff. And it, usually the interface is terrible because it's an afterthought. Like package managers are not sexy. <laughs> they really aren't. Uh, I I would rather have created Instagram than uh, HomeTree, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it was a natural fit for all the skills I developed doing open source and like the things that I care about. I love trying new stuff out, right? So uh package manager is like kind of a lot of fun for me to work on because you're always discovering the newest stuff and making it work and then figuring out how it integrates with everything so you know t is we call it the next generation package manager which maybe we'll stop at some point i'm not convinced that's our tagline yet uh but it's also a cross-platform package manager so by default we work on linux and mac and neither is favorite uh, I'm working on the Windows version. I want it to work on Windows. But especially nowadays, um, you should be able to flip between platforms. And if you've got a dev shop or a dev team, like you shouldn't say to any of them, you shouldn't force them to use Mac or Linux or Windows. They should use whatever they want to. And more and more software is cross-platform. Like use VS Code, say. like You can use that on any of the platforms. So it shouldn't something like your package manager, as a developer at least, also be cross-platform so then as a team you just lay out the instructions for t and everyone just types the same commands in um so windows soon hopefully like i am still like we released uh t the package manager uh in november so we're into month three and a half three four <laughs> it feels like a lot longer because all i've done since is like 80 to 100 hour weeks working on the thing like, uh, it's really, really coming along. I'm super pleased with it. I think we released it a little early, honestly, but there, it was timing-wise, was good. And like, it's a startup this time, right? I can't just do what I want. <laughs> we have financial and business decisions uh, on the line as well. But it's great. And uh, as it stands now, it's like kind of magical in how it works. Like, the default mode, uh, you never install anything. Uh, you just type the commands... And if you haven't got it, it fetches it, and then it runs the command. So, you know, maybe that's not for DevOps, SysOps people, although we have a surprising number of DevOps, SysOps people who love it. Uh, but it's an optional thing. So the, by default, we suggest you do that. Now, for developers, it's great. Like, if you're a developer, you're not worried so much about the security consequences of, like, typing some random command and it might do something you weren't expecting in. But, um, you know, we're probably going to make an opt-in thing for that. So it checks with you first, for some, some of the packages at least. Like, some of them are obvious. You know, if you want Git, like, you want Git. It's it's what you wanted. But if you've never heard of the tool before and it's obscure. So, you know, that's it's new. We're still working out things. It's pre-version 1. There's lots of potential for how we're going to work around with it. But in general, I, I, I came at it with the idea that Package Manager can do so much more, and nobody likes Package Managers. They get in the way. So let's try and remove all the friction, and let's try and increase the amount of possibility. So over time, we'll add things like automatic completion, uh, integrations between tools. Like These are things that nobody's really tried very much before. Uh, if you install Package Foo and Package Bar, and they can do something together, we should automatically enable that. And like, you know, show you what you can do with it. So we got lots of cool ideas for what we can do there. But uh, version one will probably be like just focusing on what we've got right now. And uh, it's a tool for making more possible. So you can type anything in, you get it. If you uh, enable it with scripts, it will install everything the script uses as it runs the script. Uh, so you can just share scripts with people and not like worry about, you know, they don't have to worry about how they're going to get the things that it needs. Like the idea of like having to figure out your dependencies before you utilize things. With T, it's not a thing. You, uh, I'm hoping this will increase the amount of like interesting scripts that exist in the world, honestly. A lot of the time people write these scripts and you, the only thing you can rely on is like there'll be Bash and like POSIX tools. <laughs> and like, you know, the scripts as a result, uh, well, clunky. Like, let's face it, writing a bash script is quite advanced, really. Like, so many gotchas. It wouldn't it be better if you could just rely on the fact that Ruby exists because T will automatically install it if they haven't got it. 
or uh, you know, in that bash script, you can start using other tools. So I love uh, Charm. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Charm, but they released this uh, tool called Gum, and uh, it's to make glamorous bash scripts. And uh, you, if you use, uh, you type Gum, and then you can like have confirmation. Um, like boxes pop up and like takes inputs. You can have a list and have them select from things. And it's all like just a command line tool. Uh, so it's fabulous for writing shell scripts with, but they have to have gum installed, right? <laughs> so with T, it's easy to install things like our in installation one liner. You know, we got one of those, and I actually think I invented this idea. Like I never saw it before. I did it with homebrew, and I just thought of it one day. I don't think anyone had done that, but anyway, you know, the humble brag. Um, so the install one liner we have for T, uh, it either installs T or if you type a package after it. It doesn't install T. It just installs the package in a temporary location. So you can write a script where it calls the T one-liner with curl for the packages you need in the script. And then when the script's done, just deletes everything. So yeah, I really want to like it to be like this useful piece of utility software for everybody. Everyone who uses computers. And so we also have like a graphical complement planned for this year. Uh, part of the reason for that is. Over the years, I had emails from people who really hate the terminal, <laughs> like uh, architects and scientists of various kinds, mathematicians, musicians, et cetera, et cetera, like any kind of profession, really, because tools like Homebrew and Tea, they provide things that you just can't get otherwise. Uh, there's no like installer for half these things. And, you, you know, nowadays there's a website for just about everything. But, you know, if you want to tolerate all the crappy ads and then it's not as flexible not as powerful so we've got this gooey thing coming along and it's going to do more than just have packages in it and then well like the uh, the final and the most important thing in many ways and certainly the reason we managed to raise as much money as we did is our crypto component and uh coming at this from someone who worked in open source uh for years and always had to find like either that 50 percent time job or find a well-paying job, save up six to nine months of money, and then quit so I could go back to working on open source, which is what I wanted to do. Um, and, like, you know, it's a story as old as time. Everyone knows that open source is unfunded and not really maintainable, and we don't really understand how it exists at all. <laughs> like, how, how is it that there is so much of it and it is so well-maintained? And the, the truth is, you meet people like me, and we're like, well, I do two full-time jobs, or I rotate between jobs. And then, you know, just... Well, two days ago, it was the CoreJS guy saying that he's going to have to quit maintaining CoreJS. CoreJS has had 9 billion downloads over, uh, over all time. Uh, it is part of every single Node-based website or Node app that exists. And uh, he's been maintaining it for nothing, absolutely nothing, for years and years and years. Guy's fed up with it. He's quitting. <laughs> like this is a fundamental piece of the internet who's going to maintain it and um yeah so one of the things i i had this moment of epiphany like 14 15 months ago while trying to figure out what i wanted to do next for myself and i had this i was interested in web3 to a certain extent but like most people thought that crypto is mostly scams and that's because crypto is mostly scams in my opinion, <laughs> like, it, re it really is. So I don't blame anyone for like being uh, dubious about it. But I think we have a genuine utility use case because I realized that a package manager knows all open source, knows the connections, it knows all the dependencies, it knows what bits need what parts and what parts are important. And so using this knowledge, we can take a cryptocurrency, a token, we have a T token, and distribute it to the graph correctly, all the parts that matter. So the core JS guy gets no money because even though he's got 9 billion downloads, nobody knows it exists, <laughs> is the thing. It's right at the bottom there. It's um, one of these projects where it's just become so essential that it can't be unmaintained, but nobody knows about it. People know about React, people know about Svelte, people know right. about Rust. And uh, these are the projects that don't need money because they, well, still they could, use some you know like homebrewers um i think they got 100 grand in the bank is what uh, the maintainer was telling me the other day um so but that isn't enough <laughs> to pay for anyone's salary you know no. it's not enough 
It pays for infrastructure. It pays for events. Uh, They need millions of dollars a year to pay for people to work on it full time. And most of these projects need like, you know, at least a couple of hundred grand. Um, So yeah, we're we're building out a token. We're building the package manager on top of it. I'm hoping what we build is essentially an immutable decentralized database that represents the open source graph, that represents all open source. So I have extra utility. And uh, we have really smart people working on the design for how this token is going to flow, who's going to get it, you know, like how do we rank projects? How do we make sure that people don't invent fake projects to try and skim off some of the token? And like how, how as a user who consumes open source, how do you put money into that system so that it goes to the bits that you care about and you get something out of it yourself, like more than just like feeling good. But I think a lot of people would donate just because they feel good about it. Like you talk to most people and they feel bad. They don't donate to open source. But the truth is like, how do you donate to open source now, right? right. You, f- you pick a couple of projects and maybe you throw them 50 bucks a year. Like that's just two projects. There's 10 million open source packages. So you need something like T to automate that. You need to say, okay, I care about these projects, but I want all their dependencies to get some money as well. And then there's 10,000 dependencies, right? So you've got to split that money like real fine. And so I don't see how you could do this without smart contracts, without crypto, and um, without a package manager, frankly, that understands that graph. So... Yeah, we, that, that's that's the coup de grace of it. We're working on that this year, in simultaneously with the other parts. So, in principle, it sounds like I could uh, maybe make a either a one-time donation to through T. I could say, Here, here's the hundred bucks I want to donate this year. Send it to whoever I used mm-hmm. proportionally or whatever. Or would you also offer maybe like a, a if I wanted to do like twenty bucks a month, you know, just on an ongoing basis, or or, or is this still still all up in the air being discussed? Um, so we're pretty sure we're, we settled on uh, a staking system, which uh, you know the US is considering banning. So that would be great. But open source is global, <laughs> so uh, we're not really fussed. Like the amount of interest we have from India is like off the charts. Can't believe it. But they're an up and coming space who have super interested in open source, and you've got all these people that want to try and make a living out of it. So if the US bans it, it's fine. We've got the rest of the world. um but uh so you as a user will stake so you put 100 bucks a year in say um you could just put 100 bucks in forever because with crypto you can generate new money out of thin air and so you stake we generate thin money every epoch so that's probably every 24 48 hours and uh it's a percentage of what you staked and then we give you half as thanks for staking so you make some money too and then we give the other half to the dependencies you stake against and all their dependencies all the way down. Like in this system, I'm actually a little worried that GLibC will be billionaires. But, you know, <laughs> maybe they should be. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, you could keep putting more in because the more you put in, the more stake rewards you're going to get as well. Or you could just put in a one-time amount. Like I, The way I see it working, honestly, is like companies like Microsoft will put in Five million a, a year, or fifty million, or what? What do they consider the value of the, all the open source that they use? And the community will say, "Look, Microsoft, you got the money. You're not putting enough in." And uh, the, the, here is a way now for you to genuinely contribute to all the open source that you've made a lot of money on top of. Google and Facebook and all these ones. So as a, as a user, like you don't need to feel like you have to put that much in. Like you should put some in if you you feel bad in general or you want to like participate because there's going to be more to it than just the distribution of rewards. Like we're we're talking about like creating smart contracts that give every project uh, a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. So they'll be able to they'll be voting associated with that so you as a person can like buy some token and then participate in the governance of all these different projects but that'll be up to the projects i I, we're not going to participate we're going to give them some template ideas for what they can do but you know we we understand our part 
And uh, I've got to emphasize, like, he doesn't take a percentage of any of this shit, right? Uh, we're not going to take like one percent of every transaction or something like that. Like, yeah, it, we're we set up a Swiss organization because you know it's the safest place to do this sort of thing, and uh, we we'll build the the protocol and then we'll gift it to the Swiss organization where we will be directors of for a bit and then eventually just pass that completely over to the open source ecosystem. And we've got to manage it for a bit. So yeah, we're building this protocol. We expect to make some money out of uh, selling the initial part of the token, like the, you know. But we're going to put that money into developing all of it, and then the product, and then we. This is a gift to the open source community. I think that's really cool, like the the donation aspect of it, because, you know, if we're honest, like a lot of a lot of these really really successful mega companies today are only successful because of their ability to leverage open source software, and so setting it up like this. Like you mentioned, you know, someone like Microsoft can set aside money and give it to the the platforms or the the projects that they're using. And so it's a way for them to give back, but it's also a way for us as consumers of Microsoft products to see like, okay, you said you support open source. And so now this is on a decentralized public blockchain. So we can see that you in fact actually do contribute and support the projects that have made you successful. Mm-hmm. That's, I really think that's going to happen. Like if Microsoft don't choose to do it themselves, like Microsoft is just an example. See, I think the community will give them a hard time. And yeah. the open source projects themselves, uh, you know, they're severely incentivized to get their users to put this pressure on these companies. Like sponsorship as it stands, it's just, it doesn't really work. Uh, I I would love if it did, like you know, GitHub sponsors, or uh, you know, you've even got like Gitcoin, for example, which is a crypto version of that, and they have been able to donate a lot of money because you know, um, a lot of the time with these cryptocurrencies, the value just goes crazy and it doesn't necessarily represent what it should be doing. But it's still it's sponsorship and bounties and that, like, it's not the way these things need to be funded. Um, our system is, yeah, this is kind of like a sponsorship, but also we understand where all of it has to go, like the whole graph, not just like these favorites. And uh, bounties, I, I've always had a problem with because it's kind of like giving an agenda to the open source project. Like, I feel the same about companies hiring open source developers. Like, open source needs to represent its users, not specific mm-hmm. users. <laughs> I, I think, you know, that there's an interesting. Uh, situation that you know in the olden days before open source or or before certain packages became open source companies wouldn't bat an eye paying ten thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or whatever for a for an oracle license or whatever Mm. but now that you have postgres for free or mysql or sqlite or whatever like oh my gosh it's free and you know even if those companies would have been happy to pay five six seven figures for a license for something before they don't have to and and now if they want to, you know, maybe they, let's say someone switches from Oracle to Postgres. Um, there's not an obvious way to like put that money to use. So, I mean, you could call up Postgres. I'm sure you could make a hundred thousand dollar donation or something, but who, who does that go to? Does it go into the people who are hacking on Postgres? Not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the good thing about blockchain is it is transparent. You can see who's getting that. Well, as long as you can identify who owns the wallet, but, in our system, it's necessary that you make it clear who owns those wallets. Otherwise, who's going to put the money in? I, I wonder if you've thought about uh, how to reward. Like, so let's use the Postgres example again. You know, it's an open source project, so you know, in in principle, anybody can submit a pull request. I suppose I don't know what their exact rule, exact uh, procedure is, but you know, if you discover a bug in Postgres or you build some great new feature, you could contribute that. And maybe you're not a regular contributor. You don't work for any company that's working on Postgres, how can, is it feasible to have rewards go back to, to those individual contributors uh, on open source projects? And, and, and yeah. I, I don't imagine T solves that problem, but I imagine you've thought of this before. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> I have been thinking about it a lot for the last 14 months or so. Uh, so, yeah, like uh, what we hope will happen is each project has a wallet and uh, that project, that wallet should belong to the adapt. So you make a smart contract that represents your project. 
And so then you choose how that DAO is going to operate. And one of the things you could do with that is make it so a certain percentage of the token rewards you're getting is allocated for people who submit pull requests. And then it's just, when the pull request happens, we could have a bot on GitHub that asks for their wallet and then like just automatically causes the money to funnel. Like we could incentivize an awful lot of good work from outside contributors. You know, it could be uh, for bug fixes, security reports, uh, even translations and things like that, like design work, you know. Um, and like we're building a few sort of features like that on top. Uh, for instance, uh, we're going to have a slashing model for security issues. We want uh, open source product. You know, if you're earning some money off T, off the T protocol, then you are saying that you care about your open source and you care that it doesn't have security exploits in it. So if you, as a black hat or turned white hat in our system, find an exploit, you can report it to the TDAO. TDAO verifies it. And if it's true, without publishing the exploit, we slash that project. So that means that they lose some of their stake. And we give that stake to the reporter of the exploit. And then we give the project the exploit so they can fix it. And uh, I want to do the same for semantic versioning as well. <laughs> nice. Like if you break semantic versioning, like you're getting slashed. <laughs> right. 100% slash right off the top. <laughs> mm -hmm. Another question. Um, uh, suppose that there's a, a project you're using that just has thousands of dependencies because... It has thousands of features, right? But most users use two of those features. Mm -hmm. How, do, do you make any effort to, to reward the ones that are actually used? And I'm actually thinking, I have an open source library I wrote that I know has been incorporated into a larger package that I bet, I'll bet there's two people in the world who actually use my library in that package. And it wouldn't be fair, as much as I would like it, to get rewarded <laughs> for every user of that, pa of, of that larger system for the two yeah. users who actually use my feature. Yeah, so obviously um, how the token will be distributed is going to be incredibly important. We don't want to incentivize bad open source because people are, you know, money, money changes everything. And I really, really don't want to change how open source works. I think it would be very naive of me to think that I cannot, uh, it, that nothing will change. I'm hoping that mostly it's going to be good things, like incentivizing people to like replace OpenSSL, for example, with a Rust version that is API compatible, because OpenSSL is going to get a lot of token. It's a very, very widely used library. I want someone to come along and make a, a, a secure version that doesn't have a new exploit every two months. Yeah. Uh, uh, but you know, make it API compatible. Then you can go to other projects and say, switch out your OpenSSL dependency for mine. It's a it's a capitalist model. Like we're encouraging people to find niches and build useful things. So, with your example, like, will we distribute equally? Almost certainly not. Like our system will have an oracle that sits on top that's figuring out the relative uh, weight that each project deserves. So, if you've made something that is part of some massive project but it's not that well used by that project. We'll figure that out by looking at how other projects are depending on you as well. Like how popular are you? Are those projects that are popular, popular themselves, I mean. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you, you won't get as much as some of the other parts, it's the truth. And like, in a way, like we, it might get to the point where we penalize projects with too many dependencies as well. No. I don't think this is something we do with version one of the protocol. Like We're trying to release it minimally so that we can see how what we've come up with works and then start building on top of that to figure out like the details for things that could be improved or didn't work quite right initially. Like This is going to be a years-long project, for sure. So I, I can imagine penalizing projects with too many dependencies because it's, uh, it's a code smell, right? If you've got too many dependencies, then you haven't made good choices. And uh, maybe we don't need to penalize that, though, because the users penalize that. Like, you know, monolithic open source packages typically get replaced over time. Someone gets frustrated, like I did with Homebrew. I got frustrated at Mac ports. And so they make the new one. 
And if the new one is better, the open source community see that, or the, the development community see that, and they choose it. So we might not need to do anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see a, a situation where if you start penalizing too many dependencies, then you have then you're essentially incentivizing people to write their own open SSL version, uh, <laughs> which is going to definitely be full of bugs. <laughs> yep. Well, it's true. We don't want to incentivize people to have zero dependencies. So you you right. don't you as a project don't get more or less um, based on having dependencies in our current model. Um, so if you have zero, you won't get more. You won't you won't like take like that percentage that we were going to give to your dependencies and get it yourself. Mm-hmm. And like you know, it's very interesting. Like some of the most interesting things that I've found while working through all this with my protocol team is how much game theory there is, and how how if you give people an opportunity to like figure out how to steal money from the system, they'll do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it, it means that you have to really think it through and try to make it as robust and sensible as possible. That's um, yeah, very interesting. So have you decided on which blockchain you're using for this? No, no, it's a very common question. Uh, we're, almost, we're almost at it. Um, my chief protocol officer i'm leaving the decision to him like he's uh much much more experienced in this area than me i'll just rubber stamp his final decision after like sanity checking it a couple of times but he's heavily leaning towards uh, some kind of zk and uh you know it it makes sense in the respect that that allows us to uh, use one of the existing networks like we don't want to write our own necessarily at first i was like um yeah, why not? We just fork one and make it our own, or whatever. But he's like adamant that you just don't, not anymore. Like there's yeah. uh, the existing ones that they 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 have security because they have enough usage, they have enough people either staking or mining those blocks. And uh, you make your own one, you just it's too much risk. So you pay for the security, is how he says it. So we won't, as a result, the token will have a little less value and like the system will have a little less value, but you're paying for them to have already achieved that security. So yeah, it would be layer two, layer three, something rather um, with some Oracle component making ZKs and it'll be EVM compatible for sure. Like we want people to write digital contracts on the system. Like it's one of the the beautiful things about it is that uh, people can invent entirely new kinds of thing in the finance sector on top of what we built like people have been postulating about the idea of like uh, writing loans so someone's made an open source project and you can say well i'll loan you 150 grand so you can build this this year but i get all the stake rewards or something like that you know i feel obligated at this point to plug as an employee of polygon and shoot them up there because we do have our ZK EVM product launching on March 16th, I think. So just shortly after this podcast actually gets released, our uh, ZK EVM is going live on mainnet. Oh, okay. Well, I'll point it, I'll put my CPO at it. Um, certainly Polygon, like, you know, we've considered it many times because it is a big deal right now. Like yeah. you guys have really managed to make a very big success out of uh, the, the idea of what a layer two is. So good job. What else should we know about T or have we covered all the highlights? Um, it's, uh, you know, it's out. So please go check it out. Um, we've tried the a website? few times on GitHub. It's um, at GitHub is slash TXYZ or our website is T.XYZ. So you can just go there and go through to yes. it. So like you're approaching check 6, it out. thousand stars on GitHub, so it's it's got some attention. That's cool. Yep. Need a bit more. You've got to be above 10,000 before a lot of people take you seriously. Yeah. <laughs> like when I released Homebrew, there wasn't stars or even uh, pull requests. <laughs> the only way you people could like. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. But Homebrew was huge in its time. Like, it was the biggest project on GitHub for years. And uh, I had it on my username, mxcl slash homebrew. So whenever I go to like the GitHub uh, repo shortlist or whatever, I, my name right at the top. Uh, <laughs> like I was, uh, I was pretty chuffed about it for sure. Uh, oh, yeah. In the end, though, we took it off my name. I transferred it to the homebrew organization because you know GitHub didn't even have organizations when we started all this. 
it's amazing like to think it's been like more than 10 years of github like before that how did we even do things yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, i still remember subversion and thinking that was pretty cool and shiny yeah yeah cvs was awful <laughs> yeah <laughs> so subversion was really great <laughs> for a time Indeed. and then uh, git came along and confused everyone um i'm not i just i don't get how git became so popular but i'm glad it did right yeah it, you, it, it is a bit of a mystery isn't it because it's it's <laughs> not the most intuitive thing at all <laughs> it probably was github because they saw how you could use the decentralized aspect of Git in a way that you couldn't with the others. So I don't know if Linus has ever thanked them. Chris Reigns, <laughs> Ruff, and Tom, what's his face? Tom, what's his face? I forget. Um, yeah, but you know, I transferred Homebrew off of my name one Christmas, and it took me all day to push the button. <laughs> Because I was like, I like having it on my name. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still involved at all with Homebrew, or that's completely in your nah. well, I was still on the government's committee for years, although I didn't really do anything. Like, I, I mm -hmm. occasionally like tune in and out. But the truth is, like, a really fabulous community turned up over the first few years. Uh, really dedicated people who were very excited about the project and like very dedicated to the work that was required. So when I did step down, it was easy. I had already like passed a lot of the duties over. That was at one point about a year before I stopped working on it that I just realized that it was done. Like what I wanted it to be, it was. And uh, yeah, I, I was ready to move on to other things. I don't think I could have done what i'm doing with tea with brew honestly like these projects become so big you can't change things and mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. even if like the entire government's committee now decided they wanted to copy everything we're doing including the crypto component um i don't think they'd be able to do it honestly mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. just too big a machine just for the same reason i couldn't work at apple right it's like once it gets to a certain point there's too much bureaucracy is too much process like I am basically a benevolent dictator on all my open source projects, mostly benevolent. <laughs> and, uh, it's really the only way I can work. And like with my current team, I uh, I just I hack all day and make stuff, and then sometimes I ask for an opinion on like ideas I've got, but usually I just write it and throw it at them and wait to see if they complain or not, <laughs> and then uh, it, then it's part of it. Uh, T is very exciting project to watch right now because I'm, I'm releasing like four or five releases a week. There's continuously getting work done on it. Like if you go and participate on the GitHub, you'll see that it's how open source should be. I reply to tickets like almost instantly. I fix bugs same day if possible. Always listening to what people say and taking their opinions into account and telling them if I disagree or agree. We've incorporated tons of the community's ideas. This is the, the, the cool time to be a part of the project. So as soon as I stamp version one, it won't be as good. Because <laughs> then it's like, yeah, I think this is this is pretty much mostly what it's meant to be. Yeah, you definitely start moving a lot slower after that and, and more methodically. Yeah, like, you know, like uh, Nix is an incredibly popular package manager right now. And I didn't actually realize how many of uh, the features we've got, they've got. Partly because you try and figure out how to use Nix. Have you ever used it? <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, it's um, it's not the most intuitive thing, but it's just such a big project now that you know they're they're weighed down by like uh, the, the mammothness of it. Um, so we're you know, we're just faster moving basically. I. I I understand the Nix is uh, pretty great, but T's better. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <laughs> mm. One of the things that you uh, mentioned before we started recording was um, you talked about how much money you made on open source, which I think is like a, a double-sided thing because there's this, it seems like there's a lot of 
desire in the community for people to contribute to open source. And I think um, there may also be some misconceptions about whether or not that's actually a career model, but using this model with T and, and the staking and passing the rewards down, it actually does open up the possibilities where you can actually make a, a financially rewarding career possibly as an open source contributor, which mm -hmm. is something I don't think anyone has ever said before. Yeah, well, I, I really hope that becomes possible. That's obviously what we believe, but you, you never know, right? But I, I want people to be able to quit their fang jobs. I want, I want Facebook staff to be able to go, I don't need to work at Facebook anymore. I got this open source project I've been maintaining and uh, it pays almost as well as I'm earning here at Facebook. But I want it to be so that, you know, you have to maintain a few projects, I reckon, to be able to make a Facebook salary. But that's right. how it should be, right? Like, uh, I never would have worked for anyone else if I hadn't had to. I wanted to work on open source. And most of the people who are people who've made like significant open source would much rather just be working on their open source projects than all these other things. But I've, I've said on other podcasts that I, I wonder what I would have built if I'd been able to work on open source full time for the last 15 years. Like, uh, in my part time, I managed to make a home brew. What would I have been able to do if I'd been able to work on it all the time? And so it, it does feel like in a, in a way, we're stifling the software industry by not making it possible for these people who, you know, the core JS guy shouldn't have to quit <laughs> working on core JS. It's ludicrous. Like part of his problem is he's Russian, right? So uh, all this sponsorship sources dried up due to recent events. And uh, right. well, I don't think that's also helping him from other political reasons. Recently, uh, I don't know if you, either of you have heard of uh, him or the story, but uh, if I say it right, Filippo Valsorda recently had a blog post that got a lot of attention. He was a member of the Google Go team, and he just quit his job to do full-time open source. Mm -hmm. uh, so he, he's doing the corporate sponsorship model. I think he, he has uh, six sponsorships uh, for some of the packages that he runs. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, it's nice to see the, the rare but uh, nice uh, success story when somebody does open source well. Yeah, yeah. That is great. Uh, it, it has become more possible, certainly. Like when I made Homebrew, like there was no nothing like that. Like yeah. you could apply to the Free Software Foundation. I hope they give you a bit sponsorship as an idea. It wasn't generally there. And uh, I remember, like after it became popular for a few years, uh, some VC phoned me up and was like, "Do you think we can make a company out of this?" And uh, <laughs> I didn't even think. At the time, it was possible, but mostly I just felt like the ship had sailed. It was already like an open source project that had loads of people working on it, and uh, I didn't see how you could make it into a company. Uh, I was an idiot. I shouldn't have figured it uh, out. Well, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, we, we, we've seen a lot of open source projects try that and not do a very good job. And, and the one that mm -hmm. comes to my mind right now is Docker. And mm -hmm. they haven't maybe done a terrible, you know, they haven't completely failed at making money at it, but. Um, it's been messy, at, at, mm. at, at least. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully with T, they could get enough token that it would right. uh, work for them because it's, an, it's, it's a great example of something that was very important for the software industry, Docker. Mm. Like it's made so much easier and it's made a lot of things more robust. Um, but they, yeah, they have struggled with the revenue model, which, yeah, it's, it seems a bit odd. <laughs> I would have just done like a hosting solution. I think at the same time, a lot of the Linux OSs have struggled as well, like Red Hat, oh, yeah. you know, is, is available for free, but their financial model is through the rail enterprise. If you wanted the extended support model. I'm pretty sure that's how Ubuntu makes their money too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, I'm not sure how exactly we'd help Linux, Linux distributions in the current model actually. Because uh, it's not a package, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Yeah, true. Uh, true, true. You're already beyond that step by the time you're installing T. Mm -hmm. But T probably wouldn't get much token, is, uh, is the truth of it. Although uh, we would encourage people not to stake against us. Um, but, you know, it's, it's 
kind of thing that is it's a, the wrong segment of the graph and like Linux, is, the distribution itself isn't even on there. But potentially with V2, we could take into account those kinds of things. Well, as it stands, we're still trying to figure out if uh, a build dependency is uh, something that should be considered as important as a runtime dependency. I think the answer is actually the build time dependencies are more important and we're sort of coming on to, around to that. But uh, fundamentally, we're trying to use a sort of page rank system um, for ranking, or at least using that as a base for figuring out uh, the relative value. But the, the fact of the matter is, if you're a package and a lot of things depend on you, that's a pretty clear indication that you're important. And also it means that it would be difficult to scam our network. Uh, you could put a fake open source package in there, and then you could put a dozen other ones that depend on it. But if nothing is actually using or staking against anything at the top and all the dependencies are just linked back to you to yourself you do use different wallets right like people uh, did this with nfts they buy their own nfts to like make right. it more expensive because you know it's just a wallet there isn't actually any identity linked with that but uh, we'll have some identity because it will link back to the project you have to cryptographically sign something on in the repo on the releases um, there are links to the wallet in order to like prove that you own that. Um, we haven't figured out all the details for that yet, but we'll have more identity than a lot of these other kinds of uh, financial systems that have been built. Very um, interesting. I'm not. I, I'm. I'm the. I'm the crypto skeptic uh, among us, uh, but I, I like this. This. Uh, this application of it. So, and like you said, yeah. a lot of this crypto is scams. This doesn't. Mm -hmm. this, this falls out in a different category. Actually, we prefer the term uh, "unstructured asset transfer." <laughs> <laughs> no, I think yeah, one, like of the, one of the cool things that it does is it points out the utility of crypto. It's actually like a real-world yeah. application for crypto versus a, a cartoon picture of a monkey, which is most people's association with crypto. <laughs> Yeah, NFTs didn't do any good for the rep, for, for sure. <laughs> yeah, like, I do feel that we're a utility use case for crypto that most people are like, oh, yeah, I can, I understand that one. I get that one. So I really hope it's going to help the whole industry, really, because I think there is a lot of value that crypto can offer software and the people of the world. It's just unfortunate that money always brings out the uh, the, the worst people first, seemingly. Right. Well, I think it's probably the history of monetary systems in general. And uh, that's part of the reason crypto has taken so long to like catch on still. Like, people say that, you know, it's more than 10 years old. Why is it still like almost there, but not there? Like most technology within 10 years has proved itself. Money's difficult, I think is the truth. And you need projects like ours that people can say, oh yeah, I get that. I understand right. that. Why? Why that's necessary? Why that's useful? Why that's better than what we've got already? And then hopefully that will trigger like the Web two type effect. You know, Web two was dynamic content, and uh, HTML and JavaScript really like started to prove that they could change how the web worked. And then like there was an explosion of use, uh, as as we all know. And I, I think that Web3 can have its have a similar moment. You just need a few proper examples. And I'm hoping that T will be one. Yeah, because once you see like that real world application, it gives your mind something to associate with and then build relationships to other areas. And it, and it kind of serves as a launch point. But until you have that, it's, um, yeah. it's purely imaginative. And you only have those people who have deep levels of imagination that can see the utility of it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really how it works. And it happens in every industry, but ones I'm not familiar with. I need someone to turn up and show me, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense now. I, I get it. I didn't see that before. Max, if people are interested in uh, following, of course, they can go to t.xyz. They can check the GitHub project. They can star it, get those stars up above 10K. Um, if they're interested in following you, are you on social media that we can, can share? 
Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter as MXCL. I'm MXCL everywhere I can be. Uh, not Gmail, because you can't have a four-letter username on Gmail. And, uh-huh. uh, I say that every time I can to try and get someone at Google to give me it anyway. <laughs> Please give me MXCL at gmail.com. <laughs> I, I won't tweet nasty things about you again. Right. Um, <laughs> Uh, I actually, uh, when I interviewed, I put that as one of the conditions for joining. <laughs> I was like, give me mxcrgmail.com as well. <laughs> so, yeah, that would have been nice. Um, so, yeah, mxc on Twitter, mxc on GitHub. Yeah, go check out tkli. It's at txyz slash cli on github.com. Txyz is the website. Um, yeah, what I'd like most right now is for people to use the, the package management and tell me what they think. And uh, tell me if they think it's cool, if they think it's useful, are they gonna what they want? You know, I'll build it if it makes sense, if it fits with our vision. You heard it straight from the man. If yeah. if he if you want it, he'll build it if it makes sense. So let him know what you want. Shall we move on to picks? Let's move on to picks. You want to go first, Will? I, I do. Um, although I'm I'm worried that I'm going to steal the thunder here because the pick I have this week might just be the Coupe de Grasse, the pick to end all picks. <laughs> so, Are you picking my YouTube channel? All, no, almost. Oh. I was I was debating between <laughs> that or this because I, you know, I don't watch many movies, but I did sit down oh. and watch this one the other day. And surprisingly, it hadn't been on my radar before. The movie is Ginger Dead Man versus Evil Bong. So this lady, Sarah Lee forces a man to live his life in the body of a gingerbread man. And he comes out to try to kill her. But the only way she can defend herself is by teaming up with Larnell and his magical talking bond bong. So (laughs) if you haven't seen that movie, I'm just actually a little bit shocked. I'm, I'm sure it was on the Oscars. Uh, I just missed that, that presentation at the Oscars. So the movie pick of the week, Ginger Dead Man versus Evil Bong. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe I haven't even heard of it. I know, right? How many tomatoes does it get on Rotten Tomatoes? Um, I'm not sure about Rotten Tomatoes. It has an IMDb rating of 3.6. I'm assuming that's like 3.6 out of probably four total possible <laughs> stars because it's got to be a, it's got to be most of those stars. Yeah, yeah. I'm pulling on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's, it's slow. I don't know. Maybe they're just upside down. We'll see. It's probably just a lot of traffic because I mentioned the movie and they're getting slammed right now. <laughs> so, uh, 20% audience score and uh, no, uh, the tomato meter has no reviews. So I, I think that's like, like professional reviewers. So apparently it's flown so far below the radar that even the professional reviewers aren't, aren't reviewing it. It's or their tomato meter is broken. Could be that. Could be. Could be. <laughs> wow, How did you discover this? I um, uh, I think on Reddit. I always knew I should avoid Reddit. No, but <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, got a bit of everything, right? All right, I'll go next. Um, so my pick for the week is a book that I just reviewed. Uh, I've just reviewed a bunch of books about learning the Go programming language. Uh, I've been a Go programmer for eight years, but uh, people keep asking me, what book should I read if I want to learn Go? So I decided I'm just going to go read a bunch of books. Picked all the newest ones I could find because Go changes frequently. Um, and I, I found a, uh, a sort of diamond in the rough or, or a surprise cool book. Um, the review just came out yesterday. As we're recording this, um, it was yesterday, Valentine's Day. Um, and it's a self-published book, which is why I didn't find it originally. Um, but it's called For the Love of Go by John Arundel. So that's my pick. It's it's really targeted for brand new programmers. So if you already know TypeScript or Java or something, this probably isn't the book for you. But if you're new to programming, this is a great book. Um, for the Love of Go, it's an ebook only. So you just buy it from the website and get the PDF or the, the, the Kindle format or whatever. Um, if you already know a programming language, of course, there are other books that I will recommend. I'm, I'm finalizing my best book for 2023 to learn Go uh, review right now. It'll be live the ne- next week, uh, few days. 
I'll probably pick that next week on the on the on the show. So I'll have a link to that. But for now, I'm picking John Arundel's book for the love of Go. I discovered this this morning. Um, a little app that you can only get via test flights. So this is, I don't know how successful everyone will be in seeing this. Uh, I'll have to share the tweet with you so that people can actually click it. But it's called GPT Friends. And uh, it's, you know, using the GPT APIs, um, but they've done some training on uh, people. So you can type any person in, living or dead, and it creates a chat uh, with that person. So you can uh, ask questions of Steve Jobs or uh, uh, That means yourself. I don't have to come back to the podcast anymore. You can just use GPT Friends to replace <laughs> me. Right? It's, it's uh, so far I found it a little mixed. Like I said, sometimes it just feels like, you know, talking to a generic GPT chat. Okay. Um, interestingly, uh, I talked to myself <laughs> for a yeah. bit because uh, anyone, it can, you know, is trained on, essentially. Um, it, it can try to behave like that person. So the more famous, the more data it will have. Uh, I am middling famous, I'd say. Like, I don't have a Wikipedia page, but you type my name in and stuff comes up. Uh, it didn't really seem like me. Okay. But it did seem like Steve Jobs. Oh, right on. That's so cool. <laughs> well, I think that's a wrap. Uh, it's been a really fascinating conversation. Thanks for coming on, Max. I really enjoyed it. I feel like I learned quite a bit and it was just a fun conversation yeah this was great and i'm looking forward to uh to not only trying out tea but seeing what happens to it as you guys get closer to 1.0 release thank you cool see you, everyone <laughs>